Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Wayne Baker. Dr. Baker is the Robert P. Thorne Professor of Business Administration and Professor of Management and Organizations at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, and he's also the Faculty Director of the Center for Positive Organizations, focusing on social capital, social networks, generosity, and positive organizations. Dr. Baker's published six books, is a frequent guest speaker and management consultant. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne. I'm delighted to have you here. Well, thank you, Ursula. I'm delighted to be here. So at the start of your book, you tell the story of Jessica, who agreed to help out a colleague and became so overwhelmed with between the helping and doing her own work that she uh, radically went all the way to actually quitting her job and realized later she could have asked for help and likely wouldn't have had to quit. So do you think that people often get confused about what's causing their overwhelm? Um, that's kind of a dramatic example, but it's it's a good one to begin with, I think. Yeah, the example of Jessica is really interesting and unfortunately very common. So Jessica is an example of what I call the overly generous giver. So a very generous person, always willing to help out, will take on other tasks and so forth, um, but not ask for what she needs. And she took on so much in at that one workplace um, and never raised her hand and asked for help. She got so overwhelmed, she didn't know what to do, and she actually quit. So that's a really, really drastic response. Um, mm-hmm. And when I interviewed her, she said, you know, the one thing I really learned is that it was really on me and that, you know, I always thought that it was my leader or my, you know, my coworkers who were supposed to know that I needed help. And, you know, she said, I learned that, you know, people really don't know what you need until you ask. Um, and that was a big lesson that she took away from that experience. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that really um, intrigued me in that um, y- you say in the book that help rarely arrives unasked for. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, no one really likes unsolicited help. You know, that you right, think about right. those instances that everyone sort of even bristles at that sort of thing. Um, and what the studies clearly show is that uh, in the workplace, People are generally willing to help. That would varies from place to place, but generally willing to help. Uh, 70 to 90% of the help that is given is in response to requests for help. And so that's the key is that most people don't offer help unless you've asked. And what I found is that giving's not really the problem. Most people are willing to help. The real problem is that people don't ask. And if you don't ask, people can't read your minds and they don't know how they can help. And, you know, nothing happens. Right. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we think that it's obvious that we need help and that um, if particularly when you get so overwhelmed, you kind of lose perspective on it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I think that it's always important to keep in mind, uh, particularly when you feel overwhelmed, uh, that you can pause, you could stop and say, okay, 
all right, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here and what could I use? What would I benefit from? Um, you know, do I need to talk to someone? Do I need to get an extra hand here? Do I need to, uh, do I need material resources? What do I need to actually pause and ask yourself, all right, what, what kind of help could I use right now that would really help me with this particular project or, or challenge or task? Hmm. Yeah. And, and you say that most people only ask for help when they either can't figure it out for themselves or they're totally desperate. I, I know you talk about four different kinds of people in the sort of broad terms about in, in, in the area of giving and receiving help. Could you talk a little bit about that and uh, how people differ in their styles? Uh, yes, there are uh, four main styles. So the most common one is like Jessica, the overly generous giver, who is esteemed and well-regarded for generosity, but they're less productive and even suffer from burnout because they don't get the inflow of resources that they need. That's very common. Um, sort of the opposite of that would be the selfish taker. Unfortunately, there aren't many pure selfish takers, there are some, but in that case, that's someone who will ask and who will take everything in, um, but not help in return. A friend of mine who used to work at IBM Consulting said, oh, we call those people sponges. They just sucked in everything and they never gave a drop back. <laughs> right. What happens over time is that those people will experience a decline in their performance and productivity because you know people stop helping them because they realize that mm. nothing's coming back the other way. Right. A third type is the lone wolf or the, the rugged individualist who just has their head down, just focusing on work. They never ask for help and they never give help. You know, and that's a pretty lonely, disconnected place to be, and it's an unproductive place to be. And the fourth type is the real goal where people want to be, where you want to be individually, you want teams to be there. In fact, you want entire organizations to be there, and that's the giver requester, the person who freely and generously helps other people doesn't keep track of who helps, you know, it's not about tit for tat exchange and they make requests whenever they need help, they reach out and they ask for it. So to be both, you know, and I, I always say that there's no giving without receiving, uh, no receiving without giving. And it's the request that really drives that whole process. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was really intrigued when I read uh, those four styles and, and wondered do you ever look at, um, for example, much of my audience is entrepreneurs. So are, do entrepreneurs kind of fall into the stereotype of lone wolf or is it really very broad based and that, that uh, there, there's not a specific kind of style that tends to go with a particular role? You know, that's really interesting. Um, that study has not been done yet. Uh, so mm -hmm. I don't know from scientific evidence um, but my sense, knowing entrepreneurs and attempting to be one myself on occasion, um, I've seen all types. I've seen people who are the lone wolves. They say, okay, you know, just the two of us here, we're going to figure this out. And we're not going to ask for help. There's the people who only ask for help and they won't give. Um, you know, so I've seen entrepreneurs that would fit in all four styles. You know, entrepreneurs are very interesting because, you know, they're, Entrepreneurs are trying to develop or take advantage of, a, of an opportunity and they don't have all the resources that they need. That's almost a definition of what an entrepreneur is. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, would really benefit from uh, this whole approach, this whole philosophy from these tools because, you know, you need resources, you need input, um, you need all sorts of things in order to be productive. You're trying to develop something, you need people to try out your prototype, 
what have you. There's lots of stuff. And I always encourage entrepreneurs to be part of a, of a network where they can give and get help from one another. I mean, a very concrete example would be someone who says, you know, I need, a, I need an attorney to go through this particular contract. Well, you know, it might be new for you as an entrepreneur, but there's a whole network of entrepreneurs who've been through that before. You can ask for help. And there'll be times when you'll be able to help those people. Yeah, I agree. I think entrepreneurs, I mean, nobody creates a business on their own. And in the broader uh, subject of impact, nobody has impact on their own. There's no uh, scenario in which you're you're just the, the lone person having an impact and certainly very limiting when you have that approach. So... Uh, you talk about a lot of the benefits of asking for help, and I was really, uh, I hadn't really thought through all the various ways in which asking for help is beneficial. And uh, I mean, in addition to, uh, you know, approving operational efficiency and, uh, and, uh, and elevating team performance, you also talk about other aspects, other particular things that you think are, are really beneficial about this consciously asking for help approach? Uh, yes, there are many. And we've seen the benefits for indiv individuals, teams, and even organizations. If you look at the individual level, uh, the most productive people, the most highly regarded people are those giver requesters. And when they request, they get the inflow of resources they need. Could be ideas, information, advice, opportunities, a connection, referral, any number of resources. But when you have those, you're able to be more productive. So we've found that um, asking is related to higher productivity and performance, uh, higher satisfaction with one's job and ability to live your purpose, uh, your ability to have impact. Uh, we found that it reduces stress um, when you don't have to figure it all out yourself, but you can actually reach out. Uh, in fact, I know a, an economic consulting firm. So these are all PhD economists, really smart people, you know, who've been trained to do their work themselves. But the principles of this consulting firm say, if you work for more than 20 minutes on a problem and you're stuck, you're supposed to stop. You're supposed to reach out and ask someone else for input, you know. Oh, wow. I love that. A session or something, you know, don't keep working and slogging it on. You know, that's not the most efficient thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's, I mean, giving it that definitive a time frame in which you're, you're plugging away at something because people that are used to problem solving and do it well, I would think tend to kind of stick with it maybe longer than is effective sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I find that, that I often see that, that people will, will say later on, you know, if only I had asked earlier on, I would have solved this problem quicker and better. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's kind of a, a flip side to asking for help. I mean, it sounds good and it sounds like something we should be doing, but there are uh, people perceive there to be social costs of seeking help and about what others' perceptions might be. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. In fact, um, you put your finger on it. It's called the social cost of asking for help. So people, what that means is that people are concerned, worried, fear that if they ask for help, they're going to be perceived to be weak or ignorant or incompetent. And if you, now if you make a trivial, trivial request, that, that actually might be true. Uh, but there's some new research that's come out by a team from Harvard and Wharton where they have found the opposite. As long as you make a thoughtful, intelligent request, people will think you are more competent 
not less. You know, that you make a thoughtful request and say, okay, this person is confident. They know their limits. They're willing to reach out and, you know, be a little vulnerable. That all conveys a lot of sense of maturity and competence. So as long as you make a thoughtful request, and I write about that pretty extensively in the book. For example, a thoughtful request follows what I call the SMART criteria. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean something a little bit different by that. Um, so S means specific, and we've found that, you know, General requests don't get much help. People think if you cast a broad net, you'll get more help. It's the opposite. You want to, if you, you want to ask a very specific request, the M is for meaningful or important. Um, and that's the M differs from the usually way we think about the M in smart, which is measurable. Measurability right. is nice. Um, but I mean meaningful. You need to explain the why. Why are you making this request? Why is it important to you, to your job, to your employer? Uh, the A is action-oriented. You ask for something to be done. So a goal is not a request. A goal is a destination. A request helps you move in the direction of that destination. Uh, the R is for real or realistic. So people have asked for all kinds of things and have made these smart requests and even things you would think are highly unlikely get fulfilled. Um, but if you can't make a request like, you know, I want to colonize the moon next year. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it, has to, it, could be it could be a stretch. And I encourage people to, to make a stretch when they make the request, but it has to be strategically sound. And then the T is time bound. You need a date. And if you say, oh, sometime next year, that's not going to motivate anyone. You know, if when you're really needed is by the end of December, you should say that. So a thoughtful request follows those five smart criteria. And if you think about that and really think clearly about, you know, what is the goal that I'm trying to achieve? What do I really need? Okay, let me formulate that request using these smart criteria. That will be a thoughtful request and people will increase their perceptions of your competence. Hmm. Yeah, you use Talk in the book, you provide a really extensive toolkit for putting this into action, which I think is so helpful. And you talk about three steps in developing the behavior of asking for help, that, that asking for help is actually a behavior you want to cultivate. And you've touched on a couple of those already, determining your goals and needs, translating those needs into well-formulated requests. And then the third one is figure out whom and how to ask. Could you speak about that one, that last one in particular? Yeah, sometimes people limit themselves to asking their inner circle of close friends, family, and associates. But of course you want to do that, but the real network power comes from reaching outside of your comfort zone to ask people in the larger network. And there's a number of ways um, that could be done. Uh, one example would be what I call the two-step or two-degree method, which be, might be that, you know, I know I need to ask, and I don't know in my network who has the answer or has that resource, but I know someone who might know someone who has that. Mm -hmm. So it's two steps out. Sometimes I've even seen it go three steps out. So think about, okay, well, I don't really know who has this, but, you know, I kind of know the right person to ask. Like, for example, somebody asked me a question once about um, – how could they measure economic inequality and inequity in their firm? It was the CEO of a company. And mm. I said, well, that's really an important topic. And I don't know the answer to that. But let me ask around. And I talked to some colleagues in the accounting department here at the Ross School of Business. And I happened to know them because we had been on a committee together. 
And it was amazing. That person said, you know, the expert on that, they just did the dissertation and they're a professor at Harvard Business School. I'll put you in touch with them. So there was like three steps to get to that person, you know, but it's like sometimes, you know, who to ask to get to who you need to talk to or who has the resource. So that two or even three step process. Another is to activate your dormant ties. So a dormant tie is, uh, is someone that you once had a close connection with, but you haven't been in touch with for years. Mm-hmm. You know, and the research shows that people feel a little uncomfortable about contacting an old connection, an old tie. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, that, but what the research shows again, that's why I think that the research is helpful because we need to update our beliefs or our assumptions about this. What the research shows is that most people are delighted that you reached out to them, that you thought of them. Um, and they've become really valuable sources because since you haven't been in touch, your lives have diverged. So they're, what they know and they're, who they know, their networks are really quite different. Um, and so that's another way that you can go outside of your inner circle. You know, connect to, the, connect to those dormant ties, people you knew in the past. Um, reach out through that two or three step method. And I also advocate using um, collaborative technology platforms or Yammer or any messaging apps that people have, and you reach a broader audience that way. You want to be thoughtful about doing it, but there's a lot of ways you can find what you're looking for. Yeah, I call that two or three step method um, following the breadcrumbs because often you you don't know the exact person to talk to. And I love how you've spoken about that in terms of reaching out and successive steps to see how you can expand your network. And that uh, what you talked about with the uh, dormant ties, I think that's so uh, interesting. And it surprised me. I also felt like, well, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable reaching out to someone. But in the book, you you go into how people infer an affiliative motive when you ask for help. That that So more people than you think would say yes. And that asking a second time also works, even if they said no the first time, asking something else down the road actually works better than you might expect. Yeah, it's very interesting is that if, if someone gets a no, they're very unlikely to go back to that person again. Um, mm-hmm. But the research shows the opposite is that that person probably feels bad. They couldn't help you the first time, and they're more motivated to help you the second time if they can. And another interesting thing is that, you know, when somebody says no, you often don't really know the reason why. It could be that they're just having a really bad day. It uh, could be that they can help, but the timing is just bad for them. Mm-hmm. It could be that they don't know how to help and they need some more time to think about it. You know, a no, you know, a no is just information. It's not even an evaluation of the merits of what you're asking for. It's an opinion. And I think it's important to keep that, keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a helpful perspective. And uh, we tend to kind of look at, at requests that's turned down as some kind of failure on our part or, or something we've done or said wrong. So that's a, uh, that's a great way to look mm-hmm. at it. Do you think that, uh, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about individual benefits of asking for help and organizational ones too, but it, maybe we can find somewhere in the middle about teams. Is, does asking, does being asked for help help people collaborate more effectively? 
Yes, it does. In fact, we can look at it both what happens inside a team and then what happens when the team reaches outside of the team. So think about team members. The best teams are ones in which people freely give and get help from one another, that they cooperate, that they collaborate. So in really strong teams that have positive cultures that make a real impact, you know, people feel psychologically safe to make a request, uh, to ask for help. Uh, a great example of that is, is IDEO, the, the renowned industrial design firm where they have these practices, like, for example, in an informal or impromptu huddle, where it says that, you know, when you're stuck in something, call together a bunch of fellow uh, designers and uh, ask for input, ask for a brainstorming session. Um, in fact, you're almost virtually required. The norms are very strong about doing that. So really good teams will give and get help from one another. People freely ask and they freely give. Um, and there's a number of tools for doing that, which we can talk about. Um, and then effective teams also have strong external connections or external ties. So they're not, they don't work in isolation. You know, they say, okay, well, what, let's sit down as a team. What do we need? We don't have it in the team. Okay, well, what do we need? Let's make a thoughtful request from somebody in this other department or unit or location or even another organization, you know, that, that the teams that are, have those good external ties are more successful as well. Hmm. Yeah, you also talk about high-performing teams being created by selecting giver requesters. So one of those four group styles that you mentioned, uh, one of those four styles of being able to both give without kind of having a transactional approach and also being able to ask for help. Uh, that uh, surprised me a little bit. And, and then it was like, of course, you want to be intentional about bringing those people together. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you're fortunate and you're pulling together a team, you want to think about, you know, all right, who has the right knowledge and the right expertise and experiences and who is a generous giver and will ask for what they need. And to select on that last criteria is really important. That sets that team up for success. It kind of sets the stage in a way that, okay, they're going to be, people are going to be giving and getting help and they're going to, you know, maximize their collective impact by doing that. Um, but, you know, sometimes you don't have the luxury of, of formulating the team. You're just on a team or somebody else puts a team together without regard to having giver requesters. Um, but there's still a lot of things you could do there uh, as well. So there's, um, as I already mentioned, the informal huddle that uh, IDEO has. Some other uh, organizations have a more formal huddle that they, you know, once a week, uh, they get together as a team and uh, they kind of make it normal and routine for people to ask for help and to give help. Uh, another practice uh, is the, uh, the stand-up. Uh, this is very, a very common practice in IT firms and software development firms, but I think it has widespread application to any kind of team and there so the typical way it's done is that like say at 10 o'clock every morning uh, the group will get up stand in a big circle and everyone has to speak to three things they have to say here's what I worked on yesterday here's what I'm working mm -hmm. on today and here's the help I need and then very quickly you go all the way around and psychologically that works because that's a group norm you're expected to ask for help not asking for help is violating the, the group norm Another is that everyone's got to do it. When everyone is in the same boat, when everyone has to make a request for something, it's a lot easier to do it. Right. It's a norm Absolutely. within the group. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The first time I saw that was at a nonprofit in South Africa that I did work with. And it was 
to me, it was such an incredibly effective method for, as you said, it normalizes the asking for help. You get exposure to the whole team when it's possible in that size organization. Um, and you're able to hear what else is going on. So it, it's, there's many layers to it, many layers of benefits. That's a, that's a great strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that Bernays Brown work on vulnerability is making it easier for people to face the vulnerability of asking for help? I, I know her work has somewhat entered the cultural mainstream. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a fact that when we ask for help, we are making ourselves uh, a little vulnerable. Um, so it, it is directly applicable, you know, but I think it's, I think there's a greater risk to not making yourself vulnerable, you know, that you just will not be able to have the impact that you want to achieve your goals, to fulfill your purpose or your mission all by yourself. And, you know, you need to make requests of people to bring together a strong network to, to achieve all those things that you want to do. And so I think, I think a feeling vulnerable is, is normal, but it's like, I don't know, I think that it's, you know, this is a habit, the idea of asking, giving our habits. And the more you do it, the less vulnerable you're going to feel. Now, in some workplaces, uh, it may not feel psychologically safe. So I recommend two things. One, make a thoughtful request, but it could be a, it could be a safe request. Ask for a smaller thing. Um, and that, you know, as people start doing that over time, they can learn and they'll make bigger requests. I've seen that very often. Um, in fact, one of the tools that we have is called the, the reciprocity ring. It's a mm-hmm. process of asking for and giving help. We've had now, oh, at this point, well over 100,000 people around the world have participated in this. And, wow. You know, the thing is, is that people, you know, I've done it in workplaces that are psychologically unsafe, but everyone has permission to ask. It's a requirement to participate. It's the ticket of admission. Um, and, you know, if people still feel vulnerable, I say, you know, just make a safe request. Another strategy, of course, is to, you know, well, okay, well, make, you know, lots of people, you know, you can make a request outside of that unsafe place, you know, maybe in a community group or people in your neighborhood or whatever, you know, that not just to think about it in terms of that one group that, you know, that that you're immediately a part of. Is the reciprocity ring something that you think is pretty easy to implement or does it have to be facilitated? How does it work? Yeah, most of the tools I talk about, um, you can learn and do and use on your own. And that was my intent. I have a toolbox of tools, a menu, if you will. Reciprocity ring um, is a, it's a very structured process. It's a very energizing, very fun process, but people need to be trained in how to do that, how to facilitate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, facilitator properly. Every time someone has said, oh, I get the idea, I'll just do it. They never do it the way that it should be done. <laughs> There's a recipe. I kind of call it like the, the joy of cooking. You know, you can make a recipe in the joy of cooking and you'll have a pretty good outcome as long as you follow the recipe exactly. But if you deviate, you know, change the ingredients, cooking times, you're going to get a, you're going to get something that's, well, suboptimal, right? So same thing with, with the reciprocity rate. So that's one thing we do is that we train people to how, how to properly facilitate a reciprocity ring. Mm. 
I, I know you've uh, you've taught it, at least the, uh, you've related and to the folks at INSEED, the one of the world's most prestigious business schools in Europe, and they uh, they actually teach it there. You you talk about that in the book, so it's spreading it far and wide, which is great. I, yeah, I'd love I'd love to explore this developing a broader culture of that promotes asking for help in a positive way. And in the book, you talk about autonomous help seekers versus dependent help seekers. Uh, could you, and that speaks to a way in which people are asking for help. Uh, could you speak more to that? Yes, yeah, so a, an autonomous help seeker is someone who will ask for help with the intent to learn and to grow and develop. A dependent help seeker is someone who asks just to get the problem solved and are not focused on learning to, to really do anything or how to do it in the future. I can give you a, a really good example uh, close to home. So, so I'm a member of the analog generation, but my son is a member of the digital generation. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty familiar with computers and stuff, but I, it's, I'm not a natural like he is. So every now and then I get stuck with something in my iPhone. And I'll say to him, I said, hey, can you help with this? Well, I said, can you teach me how to do it? You know, so I don't have to come back and ask him again. Right. So he just kind of rolls his eyes, he takes my phone, he goes <laughs> zip, 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 and his, his hands are a blur, and he hands it back to me. I have the problem fixed, but I haven't learned how to do it myself. So right. I guess I want autonomous self-seeking. I want to be taught how to do it, so I don't have to go back to him again. But what I get is dependent, right? Because he just doesn't really quick to get it done with. So that's what right. we mean about the difference between those two. I actually think there's a connection with uh, the idea of – a growth mindset here too. If you think you have a fixed mindset, you know, you can't really learn, grow, develop, that sort of thing. You're probably more mm-hmm. likely to be, think of help seeking as a dependency thing. Um, but if you have a growth mindset, um, then you view help seeking, autonomous help seeking as a way of growing and developing and learning. Oh, I love that. That's Carol Dweck's work on, on mindset. I, I love that uh, way of thinking about it. That, yeah, that's great. Well, um, the other realm that I think this is is so interesting to explore is the the way in which uh, help seeking. How does it tie in with leadership? Does asking for help make you a better leader? Is that something leaders should be doing? Um, I'm presuming you're you're uh, you're advocating it for everyone, but could you talk about it in the context of leadership? I once ran um, an activity on giving and getting help for a, a group of corporation CEOs. I was doing this with one of my colleagues. And at the end of it, my colleague said, you people are the worst requesters I have ever seen. <laughs> and the thing was, is they would state goals or vague intentions. And they said, well, we don't want to constrain things. And so what I found is that um, – leaders often struggle with asking for help. They kind of think that they have to be the great sage and have all the wisdom and all the knowledge and all the resources. People should come to them and ask for help, but they should never. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, that they should never seek help. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that, that just doesn't really get anywhere. So I advocate um, the leader as a role model of giving and seeking behavior, that they should set the tone, they should set the stage. You know, they should model the behavior of asking for what they need. Um, And I think that's, you know, if you're asking everyone else to do it, but you're not going to do it yourself as the leader, it's not going to get very far. 
So I think that leaders have a lot to learn in that regard and to realize that if they do that and they make help seeking or asking for whatever a norm, they model that, their role model of that, that they're going to unleash all kinds of creativity and productivity in their, in their organizations by doing so. Now, there's a bunch of mm-hmm. methods and tools they can use as well, um, but I think it starts um, at, at, that, at that point with the leader being the role model of the behavior they want. And that's true for team leaders as much as it is for C-level organizational leaders. Oh, absolutely. It would be true for a team leader. It would be true for, you know, a department leader or for the, you know, the head of an entire uh, organization. Hmm. Well, I, I'm, uh, I'm interested too in your own business because you're, you're both an academic, you teach at University of Michigan, but you're also a consultant and speaker and consultants are typically described as folks who go out there and have the answers that you go out and, and do the research, you uh, go through a process of identifying issues and providing solutions. How does this whole thing of asking for help tie in with the, the work that you're doing in the world and the impact that you're having in that realm? Well, thank you for asking. I, I feel so fortunate to um, be in the position that I have as a professor at the Ross School of Business because it's a combination of doing you know, the rigorous academic research and then having an impact in the world. Um, and so, and I get the opportunity and the privilege of teaching, uh, you know, MBA students who, for example, I've been teaching this term in our evening MBA program. They're all working full time and they take classes on Monday nights and Wednesday nights, Mondays with me. On Wednesday, they take accounting, so a very different kind of class. You know, like, you know, it's, it's very gratifying to, you know, to be able to have that impact of saying, here's, you know, so the tools I talk about in the book I use in my classes and they learn how to apply those. They'll, they'll learn about it Monday night. They'll apply it Tuesday morning and they'll come, they'll come back and say what they're doing. Um, you know, another way that is through our Center for Positive Organizations. We're all about positive impact in the world. And it's based on both things. It's the, it's the, research that underlies everything that we do, but then it's all the practice, which could take the form of teaching or consulting uh, with organizations. And so it's a, it's a wonderful place to be to be able to, to do both of those. I don't think I'd be happy in like a really pure research only setting because I like the practice and the application part. I like the balance of those two things. Hmm. Yeah, it's exciting to see it actually happening in the world instead of a kind of philosophical or theoretical mm-hmm kind of approach. Well, could you talk a little bit more about the Center for Positive Organizations? Because that obviously ties in very much with the topic of impact. Yes, yeah, Center for Positive Organizations was founded in 2002. So, you know, pretty soon we're going to be at our 20-year uh, anniversary. Uh, it was, um, it was a, an idea among a small group of its faculty who were saying, you know, I think there's a different way of thinking about organizing and leading businesses, looking at this idea of having a positive impact in the world. So it's not just making money. Of course, that's important, but it's, you know, creating workplaces in which people thrive. It's helping people to be resilient. It's helping organizations to be resilient. Um, It's being a good citizen and having positive impact in your communities. And so we kind of started with those ideas, um, and it's developed over time. So now we have a full-time staff. There are many faculty involved. We've got a, a community of scholars around the globe of about 500 people, and we do a lot of teaching programs, uh, both curricular and 
uh, co-curricular, which means you don't take a class, but you have this program that you still go through. Um, and, but a, a shorthand way of thinking about it is taking positive psychology to the organizational level. Hmm. And do, do you work with the, the University of Pennsylvania, Mihai Chiksent Mihai, and and uh, well, I guess that's more in the realm of flow. But there's a lot of positive psychology researchers at University of Pennsylvania. Yes, so that we, um, we're all part of the same uh, positive network. So we learn a lot from mm -hmm. one another, occasionally teaching each other's programs. And, um, you know, we've had a number of our PhD graduates uh, go in and take positions at Wharton. And um, yes, yeah, so there's, uh, there's a lot of ways. It's, it's we're all, I view it as all part of the same positive impact uh, network. And so we learn um, from one another. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm interested too in, in how the center ties in with uh, two other movements that have been rising along uh, around the same timeline. So B corporations and co the conscious capitalism movement. Is that something that you see as, as a part of the larger picture of this, um, of using positive psychology and, and applying it to organizations or and making a contribution, having impact? I think it does. I, I look at it as a kind of an ecosystem, if you will. So mm -hmm. the, um, you know, so we are, we know about our, and are influenced by the work that's been done on B Corps and conscious capitalism. You know, we know those folks, they know us. And again, it's that, it's that broader network of, you know, people were in a way we're kind of all trying to get into the same direction and we might have different takes on it or different parts that we can contribute to it. But I view it as being a whole part of this, of this ecosystem. Um, oh, I should mention that another way that um, we have impact through the Center for Positive Organizations is through our, our business consortium. Right now, it's almost 55 different uh, organizations, um, large, medium, and small corporations. The, could be the, the medical school at the University of Michigan is a part of it. Um, and it's a consortium of companies, uh, people come together all interested in uh, positive organizations, what are positive practices, what does positive leadership mean, and that's another way that we try to have impact is to, you know, to provide tools and cases and, and experiences that uh, they can take back into their workplaces. Mm, I love that. Well, I, Wayne, I feel like I could talk to you all day. I, uh, <laughs> I'm so interested in the work that you're doing, uh, but as a way of kind of Bringing, bringing this conversation to a close, I always ask uh, three rapid round questions. Are you game yep. to answer those? I'm game. Great. Okay, the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Biggest thing I've learned about having impact is that you have much more impact if you work in a group or a network. It's not about doing it yourself. Oh, that's great. The second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I think it's living the message of my book, which is that I reach out and I ask for help uh, as soon as I need it. Um, I have to say it's not always easy, um, but I take my own medicine uh, quite frequently. <laughs> that's great. And the last question is, what's in one insight or piece of advice you'd share with another business owner or another uh, person who's asking themselves, how can I have impact? How can I contribute more? 
Well, I would ask them to uh, participate in an in a exercise that um, I write about in the book and that I often use, often use in executive education, and I can give you a very brief uh, view of it. Uh, but it's a method for figuring out what you should ask. And so it's a couple of sentence starters, and I'll read just two of them to you. Um, so, so you think there'll be blanks in here and you have to fill them in. So it says, I am currently working on, and I could use help to. You know, that's, people think about, okay, what am I currently working on? What can I use help to? Another would be, you know, one of my biggest challenges in my life is to, and mm. I need advice on. You know, if people were to fill those in, they've already taken a big step in figuring out what they need to ask for. Yeah, I can see how that really directs your thinking towards, instead of a nebulous, I'm overwhelmed, what do I need help with? That really helps narrow it down. That's so helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Wayne, it's been a delight and a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your own methods and, and the tools that you provide uh, along along with talking about the research uh, in asking for help and, and also allowing people a forum to contribute themselves by giving other people help. So thank you so much for the conversation today and, and for sharing that with us. Well, thank you, Ursula. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? And also, where can they find your book? You can find information about the book um, along with uh, the free assessment um, that's in the book, but we have an online version of it and other resources at the, uh, at the website for the book, which is the book title, all you have to do is ask.com. And if there's ways you can contact me there, but if you wanted to email me, my email is Wayne B W A Y N E B at umich, U M I C H. That's, University of Michigan. Edu. Great. Well, thank you again, Wayne, and thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Well, thank you, Ursula, and um, I appreciate the impact that you are having. So, thank you for that. Mm, thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.